You're listening to the Four Oaks Midtown Podcast, and uh, this is going to be a little different than what we usually do on the podcast, because you'll notice that my voice sounds very clear, and uh, that's because I'm actually re-recording a sermon I gave on July 10th, uh, a couple weeks ago. And unfortunately, we had some technical difficulties, so that sermon actually wasn't recorded. So this is my attempt to kind of uh, recreate that sermon. Uh, Some people were asking for a recording of it, so hopefully this will suffice for the moment. But obviously, because it's just me talking to a mic in my office, it may not be as lively as a Sunday morning, but hopefully uh, you'll be able to uh, be encouraged by it as we dive into the Word of God. The passage that we're going to look at today is 1 Samuel chapter 9. And uh, we've been going through the story of Israel as a church, tracing the development of God's people. Uh, if you think about how in, uh, in the story of Abraham, God chooses Abraham and promises him a family. And then in the story of Moses, God turns that family into a nation. And then we looked at Joshua, where that nation finds a home in the promised land in Canaan. And then that nation that has found a home in 1 Samuel 9 is going to become a kingdom because they're going to receive their first king. And the whole idea is that their story, the story of Israel, is our story. We're connected to them. And that's what we're going to see in 1 Samuel chapter 9, where God crosses the paths of two characters, Saul, the eventual first king of Israel, and the prophet Samuel. This is 1 Samuel chapter 9. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, son of Zeror, son of Bekorath, son of Aphiah, a Benjaminite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to Saul his son, Take one of the young men with you and arise. Go and look for the donkeys. And he passed through the hill country of Ephraim and passed through the land of Shalisha, but they did not find them. And they passed through the land of Shalim, but they were not there. Then they passed through the land of Benjamin, but did not find them. When they came to the land of Zuth, Saul said to his servant who was with him, Come, let us go back, lest my father cease to care about the donkeys and become anxious about us. But he said to him, Behold, there, there is a man of God in this city, and he is a man who is held in honor. All that he says comes true. So now let us go there. Perhaps he can tell us the way we should go. Then Saul said to his servant, But if we go, what can we bring the man? For the bread in our sacks is gone, and there is no present to bring to the man of God. What do we have? The servant answered Saul again, Here, I have with me a quarter of a shekel of silver and I will give it to the man of God to tell us our way. Formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he said, Come, let us go to the seer, for today's prophet was formerly called a seer. And Saul said to his servant, Well said, come, let us go. So they went to the city where the man of God was. As they went up the hill to the city, they met young women coming out to draw water and said to them, Is the seer here? They answered, He is. Behold, he is just ahead of you. Hurry. He has come just now to the city because the people have a sacrifice today on the high place. As soon as you enter the city, you will find him before he goes up to the high place to eat. For the people will not eat till he comes, since he must bless the sacrifice. Afterward, those who are invited will eat, 
Now go up, for you will meet him immediately. So they went up to the city, and as they were entering the city, they saw Samuel coming out toward them on his way up to the high place. Now, the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, Tomorrow, about this time, I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have seen my people, because their cry has come to me. When Samuel saw Saul, this Lord told him, Here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people. Then Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, Tell me, where is the house of the seer? And Samuel answered Saul, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for today you shall eat with me, and in the morning I will let you go and will tell you all that is on your mind. As for your donkeys that were lost three days ago, do not set your mind on them, for they have been found. And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for all your father's house? Saul answered, Am I not a Benjaminite from the least of the tribes of Israel? And is not my clan the humblest of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then have you spoken to me in this way? Then Samuel took Saul and his young man and brought them into the hall and gave them a place at the head of those who had been invited, who were about thirty persons. And Samuel said to the cook, Bring the portion I gave you, of which I said to you, Put it aside. So the cook took up the leg and what was on it and set them before Saul. And Samuel said, See, what was kept is set before you. Eat, because it was kept for you until the hour appointed, that you might eat with the guests. So Saul ate with Samuel that day. And when they came down from the high place into the city, a bed was spread for Saul on the roof, and he lay down to sleep. Then at the break of dawn, Samuel called to Saul on the roof, Up, that I may send you on your way. So Saul arose, and both he and Samuel went out into the street. As they were going down to the outskirts of the city, Samuel said to Saul, Tell the servant to pass on before us, and when he is passed on, stop here yourself for a while, that I may make known to you the word of God. As I said earlier, the purpose of this series is to show us that Israel's story is our story, which might seem odd to you. You might say to yourself, I don't really know about that. I've never really encountered, you know, an angel, or I've never sacrificed a goat, or, you know, walked around naked in public for three years as a prophetic sign against Egypt and Assyria. Hopefully none of you have done that. But this is something that is odd about the Old Testament. It seems so foreign and alien and strange. It's a different time. It's a different culture. It seems so irrelevant to our modern lives. But there is one connecting tissue between the Old Testament and us, between the people of Israel and us today. And that connecting tissue, that common ground, is God, or more specifically, God's character and his promises. That's what links us to the people of the Old Testament. We have the same God, despite different cultures, different times, and different contexts. Now, we love the word of God at our church. We preach it, we study it, we talk about it. This is a good thing. This is a wonderful thing to be a part of. But it can also be dangerous, because we can mistake knowing about God's character and actually trusting God's character. Or rather, we can mistake a knowledge about who God is and what he promises with actually trusting who God is and what he promises. And narratives like 1 Samuel 9 and Old Testament narratives in general help us get out of the abstract and into the actual blood, sweat, and tears of real life. 
John Calvin once compared the Word of God to a pair of glasses. It enables us to see God and the world clearly. And so every Sunday, what we're doing is we're readjusting our vision. We're putting on the glasses of the Word of God so that we can see ourselves, the world, and God rightly. And these narratives are part of that process. So if we trust the author of these narratives, we're going to trust the stories that he writes. If we trust who God is, we're going to trust his providence. And providence is a major theme in this chapter. The way in which God orders all things toward his good ends and how they unfold in real time before us. So 1 Samuel 9 is not a philosophical treatise on divine sovereignty and human freedom. It's a narrative that teaches us how to trust God's providence as it comes, in real time, day by day, in the ins and outs of ordinary life. So we don't look at narratives like this, uh, like kind of like a scientist you know, looking through a microscope at something. That's not how we want, to, we want to approach this text. We want to inhabit it. We want to find ourselves in it. We want to live in this text and recognize that the God who rules in here in the Bible is the same God who rules out there in the real world, right? In our actual lives. And the way we're going to look at this is we're going to look at three kinds of providence within this chapter. Three, three ways that God works sovereignly in our lives. The first is through ordinary providence. The second is through difficult providence. And finally, third, glorious providence. Ordinary, difficult, and glorious providence. First, ordinary providence. What's interesting about the first 14 verses of chapter 9, because if you you look at the chapter, it's broken into two narratives. There's Saul going to meet Samuel, and then Samuel going to meet Saul, and then both of them, both their paths connecting. So the first half is Saul on his journey to Samuel. And in the first 14 verses, there's actually no mention of God, no explicit mention of God. But his fingerprints are everywhere. And we see that right from the start. Saul is born with all the raw material to be an ideal king. He's handsome, which in the Hebrew mind often symbolized good character. He's also tall with the physical capabilities to wage war and defend Israel. And on top of that, his father Kish is rich and well connected. So right out of the gate, Saul seems like our guy. Uh, But it's kind of ambiguous as to whether he's good or bad. It's kind of neutral. Because uh, being tall can be a sign of great strength. It can also be a sign of wickedness because we look at um, the Nephilim in Genesis chapter 6 or we look at Goliath, the Philistine. They were all described as very tall. So we're not really sure where the story is going. We just know that from the outset, Saul looks and walks like a king. And this tells us something important about Uh, the way that God's sovereignty and providence works, right? Uh, Saul is just born into this. God is the one who's determined what family he'd be born into, what he would look like, what kind of physical features he would possess. But he also determines the ordinary events in his life. You think about the journey he's on. Kish, his dad, sends him out to look for some lost donkeys, right? He just happens to lose them. And so he sends Saul with a servant who, uh, who, uh, who just happens to know about a prophet who can lead them to the donkeys. And he also just happens to have a quarter of a shekel to offer as a present. And as they travel, they just happen to, bunch, to, uh, to bump into a bunch of uh, young women at a well. And they just happen to know the exact time and place to catch the prophet they're looking for. And that prophet just happens to be looking for them. 
Of course, nothing in God's world just happens. Right? He's not ju- he didn't just happen to be born the way he was, and he didn't just happen to encounter all of these events. God's providence not only covers Saul's journey, but also determines his starting point. In other words, God doesn't write a story about a king and then looks around for someone to fit the role, but he ordains Saul's very existence. He ordains his birth and his life for a particular time and a particular purpose. This means that Saul is entering into a a car already in motion. He's entering into a story that's already been going on long before he got onto the scene. If you think about right before this in the book of Judges, Israel has fallen into horrible idolatry and sin. And this leads Israel to seek a king like the nations for security. Now this request is an insult to God, for God is the king of Israel. Nevertheless, God actually relents and tells Samuel to anoint Saul as king. And this is all happening while Saul is feeding cattle. He doesn't know this is going on. All these world events, all these plans, all these things happening, and he's just going about his life. And it shows us that we're not supposed to know God's plan beforehand. Characters in a story are not responsible for knowing what happens on page 135. They're just responsible for playing their part. And God doesn't expect Saul to read the tea leaves, to look ahead, to know what's going on. He just wants us to know that he is in control. And the way that Saul is characterized is very passive. He just kind of goes along with everything. And this narrative is meant to show that Saul rising to the position of king is not because of his political maneuvering, but because of God's sovereign purpose. God is the one who's rising him, uh, raising him up. Deuteronomy 29.29 says that the secret things belong to the Lord our God. Now, this is important, right? You might want to know God's secret will for your life. The problem is he's not going to tell you because it's a secret. That's, that's the whole point. He, he wants us to live the story we're in, not not to be connecting all the dots trying to figure it all out. And this means that we can trust God's ordinary providence with joy. And ordinary providence includes all the annoying stuff, the mundane stuff, the stuff that gets in the way. C.S. Lewis once said that what we call interruptions in our life are our life. Or that that, that the, the reality of what God wants for us, that God's life, his good plan, is unraveling day by day in what we often call are interruptions. The the life that God has for us is not somewhere behind a cloud or over the next hill, but it's coming to us through our daily lives. The life that God has for you is a life that he has for you today with all of its ups and downs and its trials and its interruptions. And God rarely takes us from point A to point B in a straight line. Sometimes he has us wander around Israel for weeks looking for donkeys. Saul is looking for donkeys and the whole time God is calling him to be a king. And as we respond to the ordinary providences of God, God's plan takes shape. Right? You come to church one Sunday, you might leave with a couple insights. But as you gather with your church for a thousand Sundays, you become a different person. It transforms you. And our lives are the result of thousands of ordinary providences, each calibrated by God to fulfill his plan and purpose for us. And we can trust him with that, with the ordinary ups and downs of our lives. But what happens if God's providence is hard? This leads us to difficult providence. How do we remain faithful in difficult providence when the bullets are flying and the heat is ratcheted up? Well, in verses 15 to 16, we find our first explicit mention of God in the form of a vision to the prophet Samuel. 
Now you might think, that's what I'm talking about. That's the kind of guidance I want. I want God to directly speak to me and give me exactly what I need to do, what I need to know. But listen to the content. He says, Tomorrow about this time I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin, and he shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines. For I have seen my people, because their cry has come to me. So God has chosen Saul to be king as the answer to his people's prayer of deliverance from their enemies, the Philistines. Now, why is this a difficult province? It sounds, sounds pretty good. Because Samuel, a prophet well acquainted with Israel's evil, knows all the baggage that comes with human kings. Now, the issue is not that Israel asks for a king, but rather they ask for a king like the nations. And Israel has been so corrupted uh, that they're asking for something that God knows is not going to turn out well. And they're going to they're get a, a king that's going to be corrupted by the three Gs. Right? Girls, guns, and glory. Yet amazingly, God grants this idolatrous request. And Samuel obeys. Right? If you want me to anoint him, Lord, I will. Uh, we notice throughout this chapter that Saul is constantly going up. He's ascending. It's described, he's described as going up about four times in this passage. And Samuel goes along with it. He helps his ascent. Samuel uh, actually gives him a, a little rooftop uh, place to sleep, rise, raising him up, ascending him uh, by helping him. And he also shares the leg portion of the sacrifice, which is preserved for the uh, priest and his family. So it's kind of a sign of adoption. He's saying, I'm going to embrace you as, as an adopted son. And then later on, he shares the word of God with Saul and seeks to shape him into a king. Uh, the king in Israel, the good kind of king, was meant to be under the word of God and heeding the warnings of the prophets. And you can kind of see Samuel trying to shape and mold Saul into a righteous king. Now, Samuel has endured a lot in his life. Right? He starts off, like Saul, as a, as a golden child. This is the miracle son of Hannah, a barren woman. And he's called to lead Israel to repentance as a prophet and a priest. But by the time Samuel meets Saul in 1 Samuel 9, Samuel is an old man. He, his his uh, past is kind of set in stone. His two sons have turned away from the Lord and uh, become wicked. And his dream of a revived Israel is quickly fading. It's probably not going to happen in his lifetime. And this would be the perfect time for him to tap out. I mean, he's been weathered by the sufferings of life. You know, he's got the, the lines on his face. His face is hardened from the things he's gone through. And yet, Samuel remains steadfast. Right? He picks up the shovel and gets to work. He says, I will take Saul as my new son. I will train him, and I will trust your purposes in this. In other words, Samuel is being steadfast. He's being steadfast. He's remaining faithful under pressure, and he's thinking generationally that he might not see revival in his lifetime, but that doesn't mean that he can't pass the baton down to the next generation. And we are called to be steadfast in that same way, to remain faithful under pressure. And steadfastness comes, as the book of James tells us, by rejoicing in our many trials. But how can we rejoice? Because we know that God uses pressure. He uses difficult providence to make diamonds. So God is not only telling us a story through the trials he sends, but also the way in which we respond to them. So we don't get to rewind the tape on our regrets. We can't undo our past decisions. But God invites us to obey now, today, to do the next right thing. 
Our job is not to figure out the big picture. Our job is to, again, pass the baton. Just like Moses, who never made it to the promised land, passes the baton to Joshua. Or how Elijah passes his baton to Elisha. Or John the Baptist to Jesus. John the Baptist dies before he sees the resurrection. He doesn't see the hope that he's been working his whole life for. And yet that's what steadfastness is about. It's remaining faithful under pressure and having perspective. This is why we need, you know, the gray hairs in our church, the people who have been faithful for decades. And uh, I know maybe it's hard to admit that you are a gray hair. Maybe you have no hair, but you've got to embrace it and recognize that this is your time to shine, that the church needs those older members who are symbols and and uh, testimonies of God's faithfulness to show us what it means to be steadfast, what it means to endure for the long run. That's why the Bible honors older men and women, because they have been tested and, and their genuine faith has been revealed. Peter and Paul did their best work in their 50s and 60s. So if you're a gray hair in our church, we're grateful for you and we don't want you to tap out. There is work for you to do and we need you. This is your time. And so we looked at ordinary providence and then we looked at God's difficult providence. Now we're going to look at his glorious providence. But I want to start on a, on a kind of a dark note because we know how the story with Saul ends. Saul has initial success, but he eventually succumbs to pride and everything goes south. In verse 9:13, we learn that the people of Israel will not eat the sacrificial meal until Samuel blesses it. It's a kind of curious detail, but I think it's here because it foreshadows Saul's downfall. In 1 Samuel 13, Saul refuses to wait for Samuel and offers a sacrifice on his own. In other words, he doesn't wait for Samuel's blessing like the people did. And this shows one of the major early blunders of his kingship. Now, Saul is disobeying the law of God. That's very important, right? Kings are not allowed to offer the sacrifice. So Saul's downfall begins with a simple decision not to obey the word of God. When we know how Saul ends up, we, we kind of think, you know, it's, it's easy to kind of see the end result and be like, well, Saul was probably rotten his whole life. You know, sometimes you see a, an adult who's misbehaving or a bad person, you're like, they were probably rotten since kindergarten. But the reality is, people start off usually pretty neutral. And it's the little choices they make through life that end up molding them into somebody destructive, somebody sinful and evil. Now, uh, this is something that, that we can start to see in Saul's character, right? It's, it's every little decision that he makes, every little disobedience that makes way for the next disobedience, that makes way for the next disobedience, and it's a long downward spiral. So his choices shape his character. But we can see that Samuel is affected by this. So when Saul uh, you know, sins and, and, and God actually takes the kingdom away, there's a powerful moment in 1 Samuel 15.35 where it says, Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death, but Samuel grieved over Saul. Can you imagine that moment? All right, this is, you can imagine Samuel saying, you know, this was my second chance at raising a godly son, and now he has fallen even further than my sons, and everything I feared happened or feared would happen has come true. These are the tears and the anguish of an old man on the doorstep of death. I think he wept because he loved Saul. He loved Saul. So where is the glorious providence? Right? What is happening? Why is God allowing this 
to go the way that it has. Well, if you go one verse later, in chapter 16, verse 1, God responds to Samuel's lament over Saul. And he says this, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. Wow, right? If I were Sam, I'd be like, are you kidding me? (laughs) What are you talking about? You're going to send me to another dude who has a son? You've got to be toying with me, God. I thought maybe this whole king idea is a bad idea. You want me to go through this whole thing again? Do you ever feel like God's toying with you? Do you ever feel like his purposes are kind of confounding to you? Well, that's what I think Saul, or rather Samuel, is experiencing. But what's amazing is, it says that Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. Samuel trusted that God had a plan for a little shepherd boy from Bethlehem, the son of Jesse, a boy named David. And this is not God's plan B. It wasn't as though God had purposed Saul to be the king and Saul failed and so God is scrambling to find somebody to replace him. No, this is, this is actually from the beginning. Uh, Saul comes from the tribe of Benjamin. But in Genesis 49.10, we hear this, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. In other words, a king will not come from Benjamin, but Judah, David's tribe. That from the beginning, a king was meant to rule from Judah's tribe. And this is an amazing revelation of God's glorious providence. In his glorious providence, God actually purposes Saul's fall to make way for David's rise. There's this moment in Acts chapter 3, verse 24, when Peter preaches at Solomon's portico about the death and resurrection of Christ and says, And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. What's he saying there? In the death and resurrection of Christ, we see God anointing his true king in the line of David, raised by the power of the Spirit. And in Jesus Christ, we see the fulfillment of all the prophecies of a Messiah king. He is the true king that Saul and even David failed to be. So what was Samuel doing serving God all those years, experiencing the apostasy of his son and the turning away of Saul, whom he loved, and the, the, the degradation of the nation that he had fought so hard for. What was he doing that whole time? Well, Acts tells us, Peter tells us, the Spirit tells us, he was being faithful. He was preaching Christ. He was proclaiming that through Saul, through David, through all the trials, God was raising up a greater son of David from Judah, born in Bethlehem. Except this son would not be handsome or tall, but had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. That's Isaiah 53, 2. And we see in Jesus Christ a contrast to Saul. Saul ascends, then descends into tragedy. But Christ descends into death in order to be raised again and ascend to glory. 
Now, who else but God could write a story this way? And if God can work the suffering and crucifixion of his son for good, how will he not do the same for you? That's his glorious providence. And the Lord Jesus Christ lived an ordinary 30 years. Then he suffered difficult providence for three, and now he sits at the right hand in the glorious providence of God forever. And this is your future too, if you're in Christ. Christ sits at the right hand of the Father as your advocate, and he rose again to show that you too will rise. And there will be a day when all the tensions of this life resolve, when the sufferings of this present age will result in a weight of glory beyond comprehension. So take heart in the ordinary days, the difficult days, because there is a promise of glorious days, the days that Samuel prophesied generations ago. Take heart, pick up the plow one more time. There's still work to be done. This is what it means to be the people of God. In Samuel's farewell address to Israel, he says this, For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. What is God up to in your life? What is God up to in the life of us as a church? He's making a people for himself. He's forging holiness in his people and drawing them near to him. And we can trust him. We can trust that we don't have to figure it out. That we're free to just be his creatures. Just to be characters in his story. Just to be people dependent upon him, knowing that he is weaving all things together for our good and his glory.